0: Chapter 8 of The Amateur Emigrant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Amateur Emigrant by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 8 As we drew near to New York, I was at first amused and then somewhat staggered by the cautious and the grisly tales that went the round. "'You would have thought we were to land upon a cannibal island. "'You must speak to no one in the streets, "'as they would not leave you till you were rooked and beaten. "'You must enter our hotel with military precautions, "'for the least you had to apprehend was to awake next morning "'without money or baggage or necessary raiment, "'a lone forked radish in a bed, "'and if the worst befell you would instantly and mysteriously disappear "'from the ranks of mankind.' I have usually found such stories correspond to the least modicum of fact. Thus I was warned, I remember, against the roadside inns of the Savines, and that by a learned professor, and when I reached Pardell's the warning was explained. It was but the far-away rumour and reduplication of a single terrifying story already half a century old, and half forgotten in the theatre of the events." so, I was tempted to make light of those reports against America. But we had on board with us a man whose evidence it would not do to put aside. He had come near these perils in the body. He had visited a robber inn. The public has an old and well-grounded favour for this kind of incident, and shall be gratified to the best of my power. My fellow-passenger, whom we shall call Mahorton, "'had come from New York to Boston with a comrade seeking work. "'They were a pair of rattling blades, "'and leaving their baggage at the station, "'passed the day in beer saloons and with congenial spirits "'until midnight struck. "'Then they applied themselves to find a lodging, "'and walked the streets till two, "'knocking at houses of entertainment and being refused admittance, "'or themselves declining the terms.' By two the inspiration of their liquor had begun to wear off. They were weary and humble, and after a great circuit found themselves in the same street where they had begun their search, and in front of a French hotel where they had already sought accommodation. Seeing the house still open, they returned to the charge. A man in a white cap sat in an office by the door. He seemed to welcome them more warmly than when they had first presented themselves, "'and the charge for the night had somewhat unaccountably fallen from a dollar to a quarter. "'They thought him ill-looking, but paid their quarter apiece, "'and were shown upstairs to the top of the house. "'There, in a small room, the man in the white cap wished them pleasant slumbers. "'It was furnished with a bed, a chair, and some conveniences. "'The door did not lock on the inside, "'and the only sign of adornment was a couple of framed pictures.' "'one close above the head of the bed, and the other opposite the foot. "'And both curtained, as we may sometimes see valuable water-colours, "'or the portraits of the dead, or works of art more than usually skittish in the subject. "'It was perhaps in the hope of finding something of this last description "'that Mahorton's comrade pulled aside the curtain of the first. "'He was startlingly disappointed. There was no picture.' The frame surrounded, and the curtain was designed to hide, an oblong aperture in the partition, through which they looked forth into the dark corridor. A person standing without could easily take a purse from under the pillow, or even strangle a sleeper as he lay abed. Mahorton and his comrades stared at each other like Vasco's seamen, with a wild surmise, and then the latter, catching up the lamp, ran to the other frame, and roughly raised the curtain. There he stood, petrified, and Mahorton, who had followed, grasped him by the wrist in terror. They could see into another room, larger in size than that which they occupied, where three persons sat crouching and silent in the dark. For a second or two these five persons looked each other in the eyes. Then the curtain was dropped, and Mahorton and his friend made but one bolt of it out of the room and downstairs. The man in the white cap said nothing as they passed him, and they were so pleased to be once more in the open night that they gave up all notion of a bed, and walked the streets of Boston till the morning. No one seemed much cast down by these stories, but all inquired after the address of a respectable hotel, and I, for my part, put myself under the conduct of Mr. Jones.' before noon of the second sunday we sighted the low shores outside of new york harbour the steerage passengers must remain on board to pass through the castle garden on the following morning but we of the second cabin made our escape along with the lords of the saloon and by six o'clock jones and i issued into west street sitting on some straw in the bottom of an open baggage wagon it rained miraculously and from that moment till on the following night i left new york there was scarce a lull and no cessation of the downpour the roadways were flooded a loud strident noise of falling water filled the air the restaurants smelt heavily of wet people and wet clothing it cost us but a few minutes though it cost us a great deal of money to be rattled along west side to our destination reunion house number no. 10 west street One minute walk from Castle Gardens, convenient to Castle Garden, the steamboat landings, California steamers and Liverpool ships, board and lodging per day $1, single meals $0.25, lodging per night $0.25, private rooms for families, no charge for storage or luggage, satisfaction guaranteed to all persons, Michael Mitchell, proprietor. Reunion House was, I may go to the length of saying, a humble hostelry. You entered through a long bar-room, thence passed into a little dining-room, and thence into a still smaller kitchen. The furniture was of the plainest, but the bar was hung in the American taste, with encouraging and hospitable mottoes. mottos. Jones was well known, we were received warmly, and two minutes afterward I had refused a drink from the proprietor, "'and was going on, in my plain European fashion, to refuse a cigar, "'when Mr. Mitchell sternly interposed and explained the situation. "'He was offering to treat me, it appeared. "'Whenever an American barkeeper proposes anything, "'it must be borne in mind that he is offering to treat, "'and if I did not want a drink, I must at least take the cigar. "'I took it bashfully, "'feeling I had begun my American career on the wrong foot.' "'I did not enjoy that cigar. "'This may have been from a variety of reasons. "'Even the best cigar often failing to please "'if you smoke three-quarters of it in a drenching rain. "'For many years America was to me a sort of promised land. "'Westward the march of empire holds its way. "'The race is for the moment to the young. "'What has been and what is we imperfectly and obscurely know.' What is to be yet lies beyond the flight of our imagination. Greece, Rome, and Judea are gone by for ever, leaving to generations the legacy of their accomplished work. China still endures, an old inhabited house in the brand new city of nations. England has already declined since she has lost the states, and to these states therefore yet undeveloped, full of dark possibilities, and grown like another Eve from one rib out of the side of their own old land, the minds of young men in England turn naturally at a certain hopeful period of their age. It will be hard for an American to understand the spirit. But let him imagine a young man who shall have grown up in an old and rigid circle, following bygone fashions and taught to distrust his own fresh instincts, and who now suddenly hears of a family of cousins all about his own age, who keep house together by themselves, and live far from restraint and tradition. Let him imagine this, and he will have some imperfect notion of the sentiment with which spirited English youths turn to thought of the American Republic. It seems to them as if, out west, the war of life was still conducted in the open air, and on free barbaric terms. As if it had not yet been narrowed into parlours, nor begun to be conducted like some unjust and dreary arbitration by compromise, costume forms of procedure, and sad senseless self-denial, which of these two he prefers, a man with any youth still living in him will decide it rightly for himself. he would rather be houseless than denied a passkey. Rather go without food than partake of stalled ox in stiff, respectable society. Rather be shot out of hand than direct his life according to the dictates of the world. He knows or thinks nothing of the main laws, the Puritan sourness, the fierce, sordid appetite for dollars, or the dreary existence of country towns. A few wild story-books which delighted his childhood form the imaginative basis of his picture of America. In course of time there is added to this a great crowd of stimulating details. Vast cities that grow up as by enchantment, the birds that have gone south in autumn returning with the spring to find thousands camped upon their marshes, and the lamps burning far and near along populous streets, "'Forests that disappear like snow, "'Countries larger than Britain that are cleared and settled, "'One man running forth with his household goods before another, "'While the bear and the Indian are yet scarce aware of their approach, "'Oil that gushes from the earth, "'Gold that is washed or quarried in the brooks or glens of the Sierras, "'And all that bustle, courage, action and constraint, "'And constant kaleidoscopic change, "'that Walt Whitman has seized and set forth "'in his vigorous, cheerful, and loquacious verses. "'Here I was at last in America, "'and was soon out upon New York streets "'spying for things foreign. "'The place had to me an air of Liverpool, "'but such was the rain that not Paradise itself "'would have looked inviting. "'We were a party of four under two umbrellas. "'Jones and I and two Scots lads, recent immigrants, "'are not indisposed to welcome a compatriot. "'They had been six weeks in New York, "'and neither of them had yet found a single job "'or earned a single halfpenny. "'Up to the present they were exactly out of pocket "'by the amount of the fare. "'The lads soon left us. "'Now I had sworn by all my gods to have such a dinner "'as would rouse the dead.' "'There was scarce any expense at which I should have hesitated. "'The devil was in it. "'But Jones and I should dine like heathen emperors. "'I set to work asking after a restaurant, "'and I chose the wealthiest and most gastronomical-looking spases by to ask from. "'Yet, although I had told them I was willing to pay anything in reason, "'one and all sent me off to cheap fixed-price houses.' where I would not have eaten that night for the cost of twenty dinners. I do not know if this were characteristic of New York, or whether it was only Jones and I who looked undinely and discouraged enterprising suggestions. But at length, by our own sagacity, we found a French restaurant where there was a French waiter, some fair French cooking, some so-called French wine, and French coffee to conclude the whole. I never entered into the feelings of jack-on-land so completely as when I tasted that coffee. I suppose we had one of the private rooms for families at Reunion House. It was very small, furnished with a bed, a chair, and some clothes pegs, and it derived all that was necessary for the life of the human animal through two borrowed lights, one looking into the passage and the second opening without sash into another apartment where three men fitfully snored, or, in intervals of wakefulness, drearily mumbled to each other all night long. It will be observed that this was almost exactly the disposition of the room in Mahorton's story. Jones had the bed. I pitched my camp upon the floor. He did not sleep till near morning, and I, for my part, never closed an eye. At sunrise I heard a cannon fired and shortly afterwards the men in the next room gave over snoring for good, and began to rustle over their toilets. The sound of their voices as they talked was low, and like that of people watching by the sick. Jones, who at last began to doze, tumbled and murmured, and every now and then opened unconscious eyes upon me where I lay. I found myself growing eerier and eerier, for I dare say I was a little fevered by my restless night, and hurried to dress and get downstairs. You had to pass through the rain, which still fell thick and resonant, to reach a lavatory on the other side of the court. There were three basin-stands, and a few crumpled tails and pieces of wet soap, white and slippery like fish. Nor should I forget a looking-glass, and a pair of questionable combs. Another Scots lad was here, scrubbing his face with a good will. He had been three months in New York and had not yet found a single job or earned a single halfpenny. Up to the present, he was also exactly out of pocket by the amount of the fare. I began to grow sick at heart for my fellow emigrants. Of my nightmare wanderings in New York, I spare to tell. I had a thousand and one things to do, only the day to do them in, and a journey across the continent before me in the evening. It rained with patient fury. Every now and then I had to get under cover for a while, in order, so to speak, to give my mackintosh a rest, for under this continued drenching it began to grow damp on the inside. I went to banks, post offices, railway offices, restaurants, publishers, booksellers, money-changers, and wherever I went, pool would gather about my feet, and those who were careful of their flaws would look on with an unfriendly eye. Wherever I went too, the same trace struck me. The people were all surprisingly rude and surprisingly kind. The money-changer cross-questioned me like a French commissary. "'asking my age, my business, my average income, and my destination, "'beating down my attempts at evasion, and receiving my answers in silence. "'And yet, when all was over, he shook hands with me up to the elbows, "'and sent his lad nearly a quarter of a mile in the rain to get me books at a reduction. "'Again, in a very large publishing and bookselling establishment, A man, who seemed to be the manager, received me as I had certainly never been before received in any human shop. indicated squarely that he put no faith in my honesty, and refused to look up the names of books or give me the slightest help or information, on the ground, like the steward, that it was none of his business. I lost my temper at last, said I was a stranger in America, and not learned in their etiquette, but I would assure him if he went to any bookseller in England, of a more handsome usage. The boast was perhaps exaggerated, but like many a long shot it struck the gold. The manager passed at once from one extreme to the other. I may say that from that moment he loaded me with kindness. He gave me all sorts of good advice, wrote me down addresses, and came bareheaded into the rain to point me out a restaurant where I might lunch, nor even then did he seem to think he had done enough. These are, it is as well to be bold in statement, the manners of America. It is this same opposition that has most struck me in people of almost all classes, and from east to west. By the time a man had about strung me up to be the death of him by his insulting behaviour, he himself would be just upon the point of melting into confidence and serviceable attentions. "'Yet I suspect, although I have met with the like in so many parts, "'that this must be the character of some particular state or group of states. "'For in America, and this again in all classes, "'you will find some of the softest-mannered gentlemen in the world.' "'I was so wet when I got back to Mitchell's toward the evening, "'that I had simply to divest myself of my shoes, socks, and trousers,' "'and leave them behind for the benefit of New York City. "'No fire could have dried them ere I had to start, "'and to pack them in their present condition "'was to spread ruin amongst my other possessions. "'With a heavy heart I said farewell to them "'as they lay in a pulp in the middle of a pool "'upon the floor of Mitchell's kitchen. "'I wonder if they are dry by now. "'Mitchell hired a man to carry my baggage to the station, "'which was hard by.' accompanied me thither himself, and recommended me to the particular attention of the officials. No one could have been kinder. Those who are out of pocket may go safely to Reunion House, where they will get decent meals and find an honest and obliging landlord. I owed him this word of thanks before I enter fairly on the second and far less agreeable chapter of my emigrant experience. End of chapter 8 End of The Amateur Emigrant by Robert Louis Stevenson